HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins. I work for Fairway Markets in the New York area, and we're awfully proud to support Heritage Radio and we care so much about everything that goes on out here at Roberta's and their studio because they talk to people who are, are serious about food. And that's what we are at Fairways. We're serious about food. We, we just care very deeply about, about you as a, as a customer and how you cook and what you cook with and how you entertain. And, and that's why we love to support Heritage Radio because it, it, it's pretty much the same thing. It's wanting to, to find happiness through serious food and people who are serious about it and, and care about learning everything there is to learn about it. And that's, that's, we're kindred spirits. If it's something worth having in your kitchen, you're going to find it at, at Fairway. And if there's somebody worth talking to about food, you're going to find them on Heritage Radio and we will be supporting you guys for a long, long time. At Fairway, I'm your personal grocer, Steve Jenkins, Fairway Market. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. I'm Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from noon to noon 45, although I think today we might be running a little long. Here in the studio today with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez and call in all of your questions today to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128 because today is a very special day. We have as our call-in guest Nathan Mirvold, the brain behind the uh, Modernist Cuisine Mega Book Extravaganza that came out, uh, I forget whether it was the beginning of this year or the end of, end of last year. Nathan, you there? I'm here. Oh, great. Very good to have you on. So listen, in case there's like a person out there who's been uh, living under a rock or something. Uh, this book, basically, Nathan was, uh, were you the head of, like, uh, GUI design at, uh, at Microsoft? What was your dealie? I was chief technology officer. Chief technology officer. So, you know, like many of the good things from Microsoft came out of Nathan's brain, fair to say, or your team anyway, right? Yep. Okay. Uh, That's the idea. So then uh, decided that uh, <clears throat> didn't necessarily want to be uh, in Microsoft anymore, although apparently you're still buddies with that whole crew, right? 
Starting well, Bill Gates is a great friend of mine, and I, I still work with him on a variety of things. Right, like I know, I know. I've been out of the of Microsoft now for eleven years, so right. it's pretty much their company now, not mine. Yeah, although you know, let's be honest, all their good stuff came out before eleven years ago. Boom, boom. Just kidding. <laughs> anyway, so uh, so a uh, number of years ago, or many years ago, as far as I know, uh, Nathan started traveling um, the world, going to the finest restaurants in the world. Uh, was also an avid cook. Uh, and then amassed what, uh, by all accounts, although I've never actually been to the one at your house, is possibly the greatest kitchen uh, in the world. Uh, then, after a while, realized there was no real um, kind of large-scale encyclopedic book about uh, how to cook using all kinds of new techniques and technologies, and so decided uh, to write a book on the subject, enlisted some of the greatest minds uh, in this field uh, to help, and then three or four years later came out with uh, the, bo- the books that we all know as a Modernist Cuisine uh, book series. Is this uh, accurate or no? Yeah, that, you got it, Dave. Yeah. All right. Uh, wait, Jack, do we have a call? Yes. All right. We already have a call, Nathan, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go right to it. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, Dave. How are you? Doing well. Uh, my name's Alvin. Actually, I, uh, I met Nathan uh, at the beginning of the month uh, at, at dinner at the lab. How are you, Nathan? Great. How are you doing? Good, good. I had a question for you guys. Um, I'm getting ready to buy a liquid nitrogen drawer, and I, uh, I, read, the, I read the primer on cooking issues. Um, I live in an apartment, so I don't know that the uh, 160 Super Ninja drawer is going to work for me. A lot of chefs have been telling me to get a 10-liter drawer, but I feel like maybe 2030 is, uh, is a better size. Do you guys have any input on that? What city for, do you live of, in? And what city do you live I mean, in, and what floor do you live on? Uh, third floor. What city? Houston. Hmm. Uh, I'm going to defer to Nathan on this. I'd go small. I wouldn't be comfortable having large amounts of uh, nitrogen going up and down stairs. Uh, what do you think, Nathan? You know, it, it, as long as you don't spill it, it's okay. You have to make sure you have it in a very well-ventilated room because if it fell over, uh, you want to make sure that the nitrogen doesn't take too much oxygen, displace too much oxygen from the room. Um, and, by the way, it's pronounced doer. Um, Dewar. James Dewar was the guy who invented it. Uh, the same Scottish name as Dewar Whiskey, although perhaps not the same family. Um, <laughs> Interesting. So, uh, you know, the, so either the, the 10 or the 20 liter would be fine. The larger the Dewar is, the longer the nitrogen is going to keep. Um, right, and because the, the heat loss is about the same, but the volume is different. So if you have a 20-liter uh, doer, you're going to wind up uh, having the, the nitrogen last a lot longer than a 10-liter. And the, and the reason but, I asked you but what... But carrying it up and down the stairs is going to be a pain. Yeah, and, and the reason I asked you what city you're in is if you're in New York, it's a pain to go get because you have to go to one of the welding shops in the city. It's not advisable to keep it in the passenger area of a car. If you live out in Houston and you have a car, or better yet, even a truck that you can drive out to the place and pick up refills, it's a lot less of a hassle. Wouldn't you agree, Nathan? Yes, I would. Uh, if you drive with liquid nitrogen in the, the car, which I, I certainly have been known to do, just have all the windows rolled down. Okay. Yeah. I mean, um, the, the reason for this is li- the liquid nitrogen, uh, when it boils it, uh, into just nitrogen gas, it creates a lot of it. It goes up by a factor of 500, something like that. So uh, you can easily displace all of the volume of the air in your car, and then you pass out, and you could even die. 
right. people have died from spilling a liquid nitrogen doer in a small enclosed space. And a car is, by definition, a small enclosed space, and an accident could do it. Uh, even if I had the liquid nitrogen in the trunk, I'd still have the windows rolled down. Okay. Um, Although pickup truck is is uh, obviously an even better way to go. Yeah, that's I- ideal, sure. but just bungee it down properly so it doesn't rattle about. Got it. Yep. Hey, Dave, um, I, I noticed when I was looking online at, at the Dwarfs, like there's some 10-liter some Dwarfs that say that they're like 30 pounds empty, and then there was like a 30-liter one that said it was 30 pounds full. Is there? I, I imagine the heavier one would, would be better insulated. Is that correct I, or not I can't correct? imagine a 30-liter doer that's 30 pounds full. I think that's probably an error. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, in general, larger, as Nathan said, the, lar- the larger they are, the better they are for storage. I'd be wary of buying used, uh, used doers um, because uh, a lot of times their insulation can be, can be bad. Um, you know, but if you're willing to take the risk and they're good, then they're good. You know, it's just a matter of can you afford to take the risk on a, on a used doer. You're rolling yeah, the it, dice. It, a doer is basically a vacuum bottle. It's a, like a thermos bottle. Right. And uh, they can, if, they're, if you drop them, for example, you can crack the inside just enough for there to be a vacuum leak, and so uh, you wind up having no, uh, uh, no insulation value. Yeah, and you end up finding out um, overnight when you have no nitrogen when you need it the next day at a demo. <laughs> uh, it sounds like that's happened to you, Dave. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's another nightmare about renting small format doers from uh, welding shops. They give you the crappiest one they have, and it's usually been beaten about. If you're going to do it on a regular basis, I recommend buying a, a, a new one and, and being nice to it. Uh, but I, here we have, Nathan, I hear we have another caller on the air. Thank you so much for your question, by the way. Uh, caller, you're on the air. Hi, Dave. Hi, Nathan. This Hi. is Michael Natkin from Seattle. Hey. Hi. So I was uh, reading the Fat Duck cookbook lately, and Heston Blumenthal, he talks about using star anise with onions to increase meaty flavors. Um, and he mentions that it is a combination of anisaldehyde and anisidine from the anise, which combines with sulfur and produces some sort of a sulfur heterocyclic. Uh, I've tried it. It definitely works. It's beautiful. But I'm sort of curious about the mechanism and whether there are other ways to apply it. So hmm. I have no knowledge of this. Nathan? Well, <laughs> I'm going to probably have to pass, too. You, you know, the flavor chemistry is extremely complicated. And... Uh, Whereas you can find things like what you're describing there where some of the sulfurous compounds from, from onions will combine with another flavor to make something meaty, it, it's hard to generalize. If you took a different uh, spice than star anise, it probably will not work because it won't have the, the same uh, flavor compounds. And I know Heston's working with or worked with the guys at Fermanich and a, a number of other places, and they've you know have some wacky stuff. A, a lot of the chemical ba- a lot of the chemical arguments for what's going on in cooking in terms of the flavor chemistry, I find them extremely interesting to read, but not necessarily uh, as valuable when when you're cooking. Uh, McGee is working on a, on a large format book on this on this kind of su- subject right now. Uh, I mean, it's extremely interesting. That particular one, I, I even though I have the cookbook, I, ha- I, I guess it's obvious I haven't read all the way through it. But I'm gonna, I'll investigate that one further and maybe get on the horn with McGee about it because I think he's investigated that. Uh, any more thoughts on that one, Nathan? Because I hear we have another caller on the air. Well, we've got, you know, as you say, flavor chemistry is extremely complicated, and you can get uh, some very specific things that will occur with a very specific flavor uh, that you just don't get otherwise. Um, and as an example, uh, uh, many wines have a vanilla flavor in them that comes from oak because, in fact, 
uh, oak has got compounds very similar to vanillin and vanilla. Uh, now, that's idiosyncratic to oak. It doesn't mean all wood does, or it doesn't mean that you can generalize that to other flavors, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, I made actually a vanilla-like ice cream out of the uh, oak from scotch after rotovapping. It's pretty good. Mm. And it, How cool. It's, it's good. Taste really, you should, I, mean, I know you have, like, a, it's easy for you to do, uh, you know, Nathan. Obviously, what I do, I combine the oak with the cream cold so that I can neutralize some of the tannins, but, uh, and then either heat or don't do it Sam Mason style with uncooked eggs if you're not worried about the pasteurization. But listen, I promise to look into this anise onion thing. I'm having Nastasha write down the question now, and I promise to look into it more, okay? Cool. You know, we make a thing, Dave, where we uh, rotovap whiskey uh, to take the alcohol out, which sounds like about the stupidest thing you could possibly do. Take perfectly good scotch whiskey and remove the alcohol. But my God, the flavors that are present that are masked Mm. by the alcohol, because the alcohol is so raw on your tongue, and palate that you don't taste the subtlety. It's just amazing. Yeah, I mean, I like both. You know, well, Nathan and I are both big Rotovap fans. I like I like both sides of the of this still on this one. But ne- next time you do it, just make some uh, take it down a little further. You know what I mean? So you don't have as much mass. And I don't a- actually add any uh, milk to it. I just used uh, straight cream because you're adding so much liquid in the form of oak. But it's a t- yeah. da- it's a damn good ice cream. Yeah, it sounds great. Mm-hmm. All right, Jack. Is it true we have another caller? Caller, you are on the air. Okay. Hello, Dave. Hello. This is Joe. I'm calling from South Carolina. Howdy. In the uh, introduction to modernist cuisine, uh, I guess Nathan says that he uh, really can't address bread for fear that the book will become too large. I'm curious where bread sits in modernist cuisine from a broader perspective. I'm also curious as to is there going to be a sequel to modernist cuisine or did you close down the kitchen and send everybody home? But Nathan, as long uh, oh, as, well, as, as, long as you're going to answer this, Nathan, I have a very similar question online, so I'll just add those to it, and you can take care of all these at once. This is from Ian Benz, uh, and he's basically saying, would you have done anything differently if you were going to start over? And uh, what's your next project? Any chance for a pastry book? And someone asked the same thing about cocktails, so you might as well hit all of those, hit all of those at once. Okay, so um, it, when people ask me what's next, I always say what we're, what we're currently doing is still going on with this book. I mean, I'm right in the middle of an interview or a, a radio show here. Um, we did a lunch for people uh, yesterday. We did a dinner last week. So uh, the team is all still working um, uh, uh, very hard, primarily promoting the existing book. Um, and we're doing a l- some experimentation that we could use in the future for a future book, but mostly we're working on the existing book. I think that's going to be true through the first of the year. So in January, we need to make a decision as to what we do next. Uh, we didn't cover pastry baking and dessert. It's a world unto itself. We certainly are thinking about doing that as the next book. Um, we might instead, however, do a next smaller book before we do that one, because pastry baking and dessert would be another two or three year slog for sure. In terms of the status of, uh, and cocktails are another thing that people have suggested uh, as something to do, plus uh, there's a million different threads we could pick up, and so we're going to look at all of them. Uh, And right now, we really have not made a decision. Uh, In terms of the status of bread in modernist cuisine, um, I'd say pretty much not, (laughs) Uh, in the sense that modernist restaurants only rarely have a bread service or anything like bread or have done something really modernist with bread. I can only think of a couple of examples. Uh, Ferran Adria has a dish he calls the air baguette, which 
looks like a perfectly little Ficelle, um uh, miniature baguette, but in fact is completely hollow inside. Uh, and so that's kind of a cool uh, dish. Um, Jose Andres asserts that at Bazaar, where they um, uh, make what they call a Philly cheesesteak out of it by putting a very, very thin slice of beef on top, and they inject um, a cheese foam inside of it. Uh, it's really good. But other than that dish, it's hard for me to think of any other things where a modernist chef has tried to reinvent bread. D- Dave, can you think of any? Uh, not not really. I mean, it's uh, bread is used as a component by many, many chefs, but they haven't actually reinvented the the bread itself. It's just, uh, you know, you'll get, yeah. you know... Difference. In your gastronomic article, you sort of argued that modernism came at different times. So it came earlier to paintings than architecture. Has modernism just not reached bread yet? Uh, well, I think that's, that's certainly a possibility. Um, it, you know, the pastry and baking have their own sets of traditions, their own things that they follow. Um, some aspects of pastry and baking already follow the same approach that modernist uh, chefs take. So modern chefs are always weighing things out exactly, and we always have <clears throat> a pantry full of little white powders, and so do pastry chefs. You know, you don't add baking soda by taste or by guess and by gosh. You, you have to weigh it out if you want a consistent result. Uh, it, so, uh, but I don't, th- I, I've not seen anything that I really could call modernist uh, baking or bread. Modernist pastry, yes. Pastry chefs uh, have been at the forefront of modernist uh, cuisine. Uh, at many uh, modernist restaurants, the pastry chef is actually out in front of, uh, uh, of the savory guys. Uh, at uh, many other restaurants that are, are still traditional or nouvelle in character, it's the pastry chef that's dragging the rest of the kitchen into the 20th century or 21st century. Sort of like Johnny Azzini as Jean Georges or any one of those Michael Ascanis. Or, or Michael Ascanis of um, uh, Le yeah. Bernardin are two great examples. Yeah. Uh, but let me further on these questions because we have uh, – this is, again, from Ian Benz writing in on similar questions. Knowing what you know now about the whole process of realizing the book, would you have done anything differently if you were to start it over? Well, you know, we – Obviously, we learned lots of things while doing the book, and so some of those things you'd like to have learned a little bit sooner, of course. But really, there wasn't. Uh, I, I was pretty happy with the whole process. There's very little I would do differently. Um, you know, I, I originally thought I was going to write a big book, and I thought big meant 600 pages, and then 800, and then a thousand, and. Yeah, if we'd owned up up front and knew it was going to be 2400 from the start, maybe I wouldn't have started the thing. <laughs> it would have seemed too daunting. Right. Um, right. But I, I don't really have a lot of regrets on it, no. Well, well as, as he also said, he hopes you're proud of the accomplishment because he finds it really incredible, as, as do I think all of us. Um, but he, he makes a point here, uh, Ian, when he's asking the questions. He says he's sure you could not be comp- – Completely satisfied, especially in this age where every week a new technique or discovery seems to come to light that changes one ideas of what can be done. But I think it's actually kind of the opposite because, I mean, the, the, the most challenging thing it had to have been for this book is because new things are happening is to make a statement that's going to survive the test of time and yet still deal with newness. And I think that's kind of the whole – that's the whole thing behind the book. That's the whole kind of interesting thing about it, right? 
Yes. And, uh, you know, it was a challenge as we were finishing the book up to send to the printer. You know, every day I'd think of one other thing we hadn't included, and I'd, I'd call Max up and say, oh, my God, we don't have a recipe for skier. <laughs> yeah, we have a section in the book that covers various fresh cheeses right. and fermented uh, milk products. So we had yogurt. We didn't have skier, by God. And skier is sort of halfway between farmer's cheese and yogurt. It's got rennet in it like farmer's cheese is, but also is fermented like yogurt. Now, could we have shipped the book without skier? Yes. But we did sneak it in, in the 11th hour. Uh, and, of course, since the, we finally shipped the book off, more things like that have piled up. Right. I mean, well, the lucky uh, thing is, food is such a huge subject, you know, that there. Yeah, you couldn't ever cover all of it. Right. And, and uh, you know, the, the other day I was uh, someplace and I, uh, I had some pasole, and I hit myself in the fart. It's my God, we never covered hominy. At all? And, and the whole process of using lime to treat corn, which is intrinsic to not only hominy, but to making uh, uh, the masa harina for making tortillas. Like, God damn it, how did I forget hominy? But, you know, I think hopefully the world will forgive me for forgetting how many. Well, I say there's plenty, there, there's plenty of other stuff. And, you know, honestly, the, the thing is for the, for the rest of us that, you know, not writing, you know, books like this, but do write in this field, it's kind of lucky that it's such a huge subject that, you know, you guys can't tackle all of it. Or what would we do for a living? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, Dave, while we were working on the book, we, we, we followed your blog very carefully to make sure that we, we had covered all the things you had put out there. Not, not always in as much detail because we decided not to cover cocktails, for example, which is a big part of your blog and, and your cuisine. But uh, we tried to stay on top of new developments, but we knew for a fact new stuff would happen the minute we were done. And that's okay. Because what we ha- wanted to do was create enough of a foundation and a base that uh, we communicate it to everyone. And if you waited for it to be complete, you'd never do it at all. Right. Exactly. Uh, we have one more caller, and then we're going to take a break. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, this is Andrew from Minneapolis. Howdy. And I had a question for Nathan. Um, I'm just wondering what's one of the biggest things you and your team learned in making the book about food and cooking that really made you stand back and say, wow, like this is a crazy thing that's happening. Or maybe one of the things that you felt like you learned about food and that your research team learned, that you felt like you were the first ones learning this and you were the first ones kind of making this almost in a pioneering aspect of what you were uh, fiddling with. Okay. Well, I'll quickly touch on a couple of those. I mean, uh, uh, one which is very controversial with traditional chefs is that... uh, Confit is a fraud. Um, by confit, oh, okay. I mean the traditional cooking technique where you cook meat in uh, fat or oil at low temperature for a long period of time. Yep. Uh, duck confit is, of course, the classic example. Mm-hmm. And while working on the meat chapter, I was trying to figure out how cooking the meat in oil or fat could possibly change the meat. And I decided yeah. it couldn't possibly. The molecules are too large for them to penetrate the meat. But every traditional chef, every particularly French chef, believes that there's something unique that happens. So we did a bunch yeah. of blind taste tests where we took uh, both, both uh, duck leg confit, we also uh, did uh, pork shoulder. And we tried it steamed, sous vide, um, and, uh, and traditional methods. And in a blind taste test, we couldn't tell the difference. Oh, wow. And when I tell some traditional French chefs this, they get almost angry. 
This one guy says, I do not agree. And I said, this isn't about agreeing. Tell me you've tried the blind taste test and you can taste the difference and I'll believe you. But if you haven't tried, um, and, and that's sort of an interesting question of attitude there. If in fact you try the experiment and you can't tell the difference in a blind test, that tells you something very profound. But a lot of folks think that there's an ideology of food that you should believe this stuff without testing it like that. Mm-hmm. So that's one example. Um, we also learned uh, what causes the stall in barbecue. This is when you cook a uh, brisket or a big piece of meat. Uh, mm-hmm. it, the people have noticed for many years that the temperature will rise for a while, then it will flatten out and stall and not increase for many hours before it increases again. Uh, and there's tons of theories on the Internet about why that occurs. And we finally found out why. And the ter- the, turns out the reason is that the meat is drying out. And the temperature uh, is held down by the fact that the evaporation takes a tremendous amount of energy. Mm. Uh, the thing okay. that's ironic about it is that some people think the cure for the stall is to slather more sauce onto their meat, which of course only makes it wetter, which only prevent, keeps the stall going yeah. longer. Yeah. So there's a okay. couple examples. Although combining cool. those, combining those two, right? I mean, traditional confit is a good technique for producing that texture on a duck if you don't have access to vacuum bags or controlled atmosphere cooking. Uh, yeah, or a steam oven. That's right. right. What we found in those blind taste tests actually is that um, what you uh, what mattered was the temperature and the time. So if you cooked it at different temperatures, we could totally tell the difference. You'd have to decide which one you preferred, but there clearly was a difference if you cooked the duck at, say, 60C or 65C or or 80C. You could totally tell those. Um, Mm -hmm. But we couldn't tell whether we steamed it in a combi oven or a CVAP or or cooked it sous vide or or traditional. And so you're right, Dave, that the original point of confit was really a, a, a sort of approach to sous vide where you could cook it at a low temperature for a long period of time and exclude air from it so that for storage. And that's why there's a similarity. All righty, and with that, we will go to our first commercial break. Baby beside me at the wheel I stole a kiss at the turn of a mile My curiosity running wild Cruising and playing the radio with no particular place to go Riding along in my automobile I was anxious to tell her the way I feel So I told her softly and sincere And she leaned and whispered in my ear Cuddling more and driving slow With no particular place to go place to go So we parked way out on the Kokomo The night was young and the moon was gold So we both decided to take a stroll Can you imagine the way I felt I couldn't unfasten a safety belt Riding along in my calaboose 
Still trying to get her belt to loose All the way home I held a grudge For the safety belt that wouldn't budge Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go All right, welcome back to Cooking Issues. First time we've had Chuck Berry. Uh, call in your questions, too, for Nathan Mirvold, 2 2128 That's 718-497-2128. Next caller gets a Modernist Cuisine signed apron, signed by uh, Nathan, uh, I, Chris, and Max. We got who's, – who's on that apron? Do you know, Nathan? I think it's all three of us. All right, nice, nice. Um, so let me follow up again. Uh, you mentioned a little bit about cocktails, but uh, Kevin Liu wrote in and said he has a question for you. Cocktail science is a branch of modernist cuisine that you didn't touch upon. We've talked about that. Do you consider mixology cooking? And how far do you think chefs and bartenders should be able to take their creations? And uh, do you have any insights about cocktail science that you can share with us? So uh, I'm not an expert on modernist cocktails. I certainly have had them, and many of them draw on the same kinds of science and principles, but I I wouldn't call myself an expert. Um, Dave, you're much more into this than I am. Um, Yes, I do consider it cooking uh, in in a variety of senses, but it's not always practiced that way. You know, most cocktails are uh, mixed by a bartender, most traditional cocktails, and uh, they g- generally don't have the manpower to do anything very elaborate. Uh, they're also the server. Uh, and so, uh, and you typically have a fairly small number of bartenders with a fairly large number of people. You, you couldn't actually serve dinner if you had the same number of chefs as bartenders to customers. The ratio wouldn't work. Right. And that's because most drinks are quite simple. You splash some scotch and water into a glass. Uh, that isn't cooking. But real modernist mixology that makes the complicated drinks, I, I definitely think it qualifies. Right, and in fact, I mean, that's one of the reasons I became interested in it was because uh, I thought there was a, a niche that wasn't being adequately explored, you know, and that's kind of one of the reasons I got interested. Plus, I like cocktails, you know, so it's kind of a yep. win-win situation. Uh, on a similar note, I'll just hit it real quick uh, while we're waiting for the next caller to come in. Uh, Colin, longtime listener, writer in, uh, says that cocktail geeks are loving the Ramos Gin Fizz. Bartenders are hating their guts for repopularizing a drink involving a 12-minute shake, although they don't really take 12 minutes to shake. And by the way, bartenders also, I was at last at the Tales of the Cocktail in July, and bartenders were ordering this drink uh, by the bushel. Uh, and basically, Colin wants to know, is there a better way? So Ramos Gin Fizz is actually a drink that I don't much like. It's got like a eggs, dairy, gin, orange flower water, and some other stuff, and you shake the heck out of it, and it gets this creamy, to my taste, under-alcoholic kind of thing that apparently is becoming more more popular. But I'm not a huge orange flower water person. Anyway, the secret, Colin, uh, is to shake the ingredients dry without ice first to start the emulsification process. That's the old-school way to do it. If I were you, I would invest in, some, uh, in a mix of xanthan and gum arabic and keep it at your bar at all times. Uh, TIC Gums makes a good one called Saladizer uh, 301 or 310 or something like that. And uh, it's uh, basically you can use it to make butter syrups or oil syrups or you can use it to stabilize uh, a Ramos or anything else. Uh, And it's just handy stuff to have around. Uh, The gum arabic acts as an emulsifier and a bodying agent and the xanthan acts as a stabilizer. So I would would get a hold of that. Do you have any other ideas on that, uh, Nathan? Uh, You made the the point I would make. I mean, the the other thing is make sure that... uh, 
uh, you've got a good uh, mixer or homogenizer for um, for making the emulsion. <laughs> yeah, well, Nathan has a, a bunch of uh, nifty emulsive, uh, you know, different homogenizers. Uh, you know, he has uh, the rotor stator, which actually is becoming more popular now. Um, uh, Tony, uh, our buddy Tony C, Tony Canoliaro from uh, England's got one in his bar. Uh, and, you know, we have one, uh, you have one, a bunch of people have them now. But Nathan has, is the only person that I know who also has a high pressure homogenizer. He can do some serious business with that, right? Yep. Oh, it's fantastic. It, um, it uses very, very high pressure, 30,000 pounds per square inch, uh, <clears throat> to uh, uh, create incredibly fine emulsions. So uh, a blender can typically get you down around uh, five, 10 to 15 micron droplet size. Uh, and with a rotor stator, you can probably get it down to five uh, microns with uh, the high pressure, we can routinely get it down to one micron. Wow. And by the way, when Nathan uh, says blender, he doesn't mean a crappy blender that you buy at Costco. He means a VitaPrep. Yeah, a VitaPrep or BlendTech or one of the other really uh, uh, high-end ones. Uh, th- th- there really is a difference. But a rotor stator homogenizer, which is a piece of laboratory equipment, does a vastly better job even than a VitaPrep. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, for most things. I mean, the, the, um, the interesting thing about it is... Um, once you get a below about, first of all, you know the the, the particle size that you can get uh, out of uh, out of a blender has to do with a number of things: how uh, efficiently the blades can get to the the particles, how much mixing there is, et cetera, et cetera. How the blade size in relation to the tank size, all that. But at the at the end, the, you're limited by the kind of the tip speed, how fast the tip is hitting uh, your your products. And in a rotor stator, there's a rotor that's rotating and a stator that's standing still. So in effect, it's the equivalent of in one, you're, um, you're just slicing a, a knife through the air. In the other, you put someone's head against the wall and then slice a knife through it. It's that kind of, a, a, of an addition of energy that you're talking about, which is the reason that it can get to such smaller uh, sizes. Right, Nathan? Would you agree with, it, with that description? Yes, absolutely. That, that, that's the, the whole, what you're trying to do is create shear in the liquid. And uh, an ordinary blender is trying to slice the blade faster than the fluid is moving. And the amount of shear depends basically on the relative speed of the liquid and the blade. But, of course, the liquid is moving and it can push out of the way, whereas a rotor stator just forces all of the liquid in a very, very fine gap, a hundredth of an inch uh, sort of a gap, where one side is stationary, the other side is at super high speed, and that creates just vastly more shear. Right. Now, the other interesting thing about blending is that your tongue... Okay, in terms of texture, your tongue can't really perceive um, texture below about 20 microns. They're about that order of magnitude, in that range, 20 microns in size, um, which is why uh, liquid nitrogen ice cream isn't perceptibly better, perceptibly better than ice cream made in a, a high-end commercial ice cream machine, even though its ice crystals are theoretically smaller, right? Because your tongue can't perceive it. So yeah. w- w- what's interesting is that the rotor stator get, has two possibilities for use. One, you need a small particle size, like for instance, like I did this thing with oysters, and you might choke out the oysters if you have large particles. Two, you want a very stable emulsion, so you want the smaller, smaller things. If you're making milks, which is a, a big section in uh, other milks like duck fat milk, which is a big section in modernist cuisine, or uh, but there apparently, and I haven't done the studies myself, but Nathan I'm sure has. Uh, there are taste perception differences that depend upon the size of the droplets below 
below your threshold for perceiving texture. Is that true, you'd say, or no? Uh, yeah, I think that is true. Um, the other one, though, is the um, is how it looks, the optical properties. Right, try and uh, We have a photo in the book where we took a, a green liquid, a um, uh, parsley juice, actually, and then emulsified it with oil uh, in a bunch of different ways. And the smaller the droplets, the whiter it gets. Uh, when put through the... Uh, high-pressure homogenizer, you wind up with something which is uh, almost, like a tiny amount of tint to uh, cream. Uh, whereas if you whisk it by hand, you can still make an emulsion, but the emulsion is very, very green. And the reason is that the droplets of oil in the emulsion, they scatter light. The smaller you make them, the more of them there are. And so the more scattering you get, and so the more whiteness you get. Right. How up are you on pickle technology, Nathan? Uh, fair amount. We, we have quite a few pickles in the book. Um, All right, let, let's we, take this uh, question from Red then. While I've made good half-sours at home with salt and water, so we're talking a fermented pickle, not a quick pickle, and small amounts of alum. Uh, I don't use alum, but I mean I have it, but I don't use it. They are not what I would find in New York. Would adding calcium hydroxide to a half-sour brine keep them bright green and help them prevent them from getting soft? I've done some stuff with this. I would say I wouldn't add it to the brine. We're talking about uh, pickling lime. I would, I would soak them before you brine them. Uh, that will stop them getting soft, but I don't think it's going to keep them bright green. Did you ever do any research with cooking in copper to keep things green or, or uh, any of these things with pickles? Uh, no, we didn't. Because it's toxic. We didn't. We, we didn't cover pickles that extensively. Well, I think it's because it's toxic. That's why none of us do it, right? It's theoretically toxic. <laughs> well, that, that would be one of the reasons, yes. Um, you know, obviously, uh, copper does oxidize green, but, uh, and as a result, there are blue dyes that are copper-based and so forth, but they are toxic, and so I, I wouldn't do that. Right. I mean, in the research I was doing this morning, because it came in this morning, uh, you know, they used to boil apparently that because, you know, you can not boil, but you can you can high temp simmer uh, for a brief period of time below the uh, softening point, uh, And apparently that was another way to increase firmness, although I don't know why, I guess, to, to get the pectin methylesterase to uh, help reinforce the structures below the point at which they uh, pectin below the point at which you break it down. I don't know. But they, apparently they used to do it in copper and that would lead to a, a bright green color because you're replacing um, the ion and the chlorophyll with copper, which is stable and bright green. But I just w- I wouldn't do it. I don't think the green's that important to you. Uh, I agree. Yeah. I mean, in other words, I don't think it's as big a, a, a flavor. So pre- preventing oxidation or changes in color in something like an apple I think is vital because the flavor is also changing at the same time uh, as a direct result of what's going on. But uh, I don't think uh, – the same is true with, uh, with pickles and, and them turning a shade of green. I don't think it's going to affect the, the flavor. It's just not my, that's not my feeling. Uh, well, I think you're probably right. And, of course, if you do want to dye something green, there's safe ways to dye green. And I would rather use a safe food coloring than uh, some copper thing I'm leaching out of my pots. <laughs> right, right. And uh, on safety, we have a question, and he has, he has a couple questions here. We'll take this one right now. Uh, Mike calls in with uh, plastic wrap, and he says, um, I can't recall us discussing plastic wrap on the air before. I mean, it's something I've dealt with a little bit on the blog, but what are the heat effects on plastic wrap, specifically the consumer plastic wraps I might find in the supermarket or maybe the food service ones I can find at a restaurant supply? What's the safe temperature range to use uh, in uh, poaching and immersion baths 
uh, in a galatine, for instance, and what should, what should they worry about, what's going to leach in, into the food. I would say actually a home one is probably going to end up – they're crappier because they're smaller and they're a pain to deal with. But, um, and most food service wrap now is, is polyethylene like the home ones. But uh, I would stay away from PVC wraps, obviously. Um, yeah. But I mean, I don't but, but you find you do find PVC wraps in restaurant supply places. Uh, you find it at Costco in in big uh, any of the really big uh, containers of of the plastic wrap are usually PVC. Um, uh, at least often there, you got to check. And PVC is considered okay if the stuff isn't hot. Um, but I'd just rather not have it in the kitchen because I don't want to. I have to remember which plastic wrap should be hot and which plastic wrap should not be hot. Are they properly – are they labeled? I can't remember. I, I'm trying to remember in my head looking for the label on a if box. If you read the other box, I've always seen it labeled. Right. It will say PVC or polyvinyl chloride somewhere yeah. if it's a PVC side. If it's uh, – it's not always true that the polyethylene ones have a thing if they have a proprietary thing. I'm not sure that saran wrap says it's polyethylene. Because it's this proprietary brand name, right? Um, it is polyethylene. It is safe. Yeah, I mean uh, the the interesting thing I find with plastic wraps is, I mean, poly- polyethylene is great because it's supposed to not have any um, plasticizers that are going to leach into your food. However, they are made with solvents, and if they're not allowed to flash off properly when they're coming off the rolls at the mill, they can have some solvent aroma left to them. Um, and uh, I always, I, I, it's miraculous to me if you wad up plastic wrap and smell it, how many of them have a smell. Um, have you noticed that too, Nathan? I mean, it's just like, you know, at the school it happens a lot because we have a bunch of different plastic wraps lying around, and you can just kind of run around the school and smell them. Um, yep. But, you know, if I, like, the, I think also the PVC ones tend to, uh, look, the biggest problem is fat-related things. If there's anything in the plastic, solvents or whatnot, they tend to be more lipophilic uh, than uh, hydrophilic. And so this is why if you have a bad plastic wrap and you go to a cheese shop and they wrap cheese in it, the cheese picks up these horrible aromas from the plastic that basically never come out. And the cheese is ruined from an organoleptic standpoint, not necessarily from a safety standpoint. Um, that said, I use polyethylene uh, all the time, uh, all the way up to uh, – I mean I don't do much uh, protein cooking above uh, 62 or, or so um, except for confit, which I like at traditional temperatures. Uh, what, what about you, Nathan? Do you have any uh, like upper limits that you take the polyethylene to? Um. You know, normally the upper limit is sort of enforced on you by the fact that stuff gets really soft. Right. <laughs> so, uh, it, real sous vide bags uh, have are usually multi layered. They usually have nylon as one of their layers, uh, and they're good for much higher temperatures. And uh, they're also safe and tested at much higher temperatures. So, something like a Ziploc bag or a plastic wrap, I would. I tend to use it 60C or below, um, and there just isn't a whole lot of reason for stuff you'd cook hotter to use the, that stuff because there's better ways to do it. Right. I mean, I do. We do chicken gal. We do chicken galatines at like 64 and plastic wrap, and they're fine. You know, but that's basically the yeah. highest. The highest that will uh, <clears throat> that will will go up, and also for Mike, you want to take a non a non uh, technical question. You want to take a, a a dinner etiquette and um, marriage question we have from Mike that uh, maybe we can both weigh in on here. Sure. 
Okay, so uh, Mike's question is on dinner parties. When having guests over for a dinner party, eight people or less, would you serve food with a plated presentation, family style at the table, or buffet? Here's his background. His wife and, uh, and, and he are trying to entertain uh, smaller uh, groups versus going out to large gallery, gatherings because of better quality conversation, close friends, etc. Uh, and Mike loves to cook, so he takes us on happily. His wife is a wonderful person, he says. He's making this thing. His wife is wonderful. He's not saying anything negative about her, but a fairly picky eater. But. <laughs> yeah, but, but a fairly picky eater eater mainly texture over taste but that's for another day she never makes a fuss over and has never gone hungry when we're out but he's worried about if he plates his food uh, he wants to do plated food because he wants to challenge himself and because he thinks uh, he'd like to think through the menu for the night and he thinks out uh, he likes to think about the way everything's going to show up on a plate she doesn't want it plated she wants it family style because it's going to allow her to discreetly choose what to eat and what not to eat and not feel and, and also to control portion size and not feel left out not feel like she's being served something yeah. and not eating it and, and feel bad um, so uh, what do you think help 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 Mike out here well it's it's pretty hard to to recommend to anyone that they do something that will upset their spouse. That's probably not a good idea, just in general in life. Um, it, it, you know, the the reason to do plated dishes uh, is because it gives the chef control, allows you to do fancier, more interesting things uh, in general. Um, you know, almost anything you plate up, you could put onto a platter, but then it's harder to transfer and. It doesn't look as nice. Um, yeah. That said, the food does actually is going to be, apart from a very few exceptions, I think the food's going to be fine either way. So um, I would say try to strike a compromise with your wife and uh, uh, find some, uh, uh, you know, fa- you, you also can do family style for some things and not for others. You know, you can have your entree. Some restaurants do that. You know, the steakhouse, typically the steak is individual, and the side dishes are all done family style. Yeah, exactly. I think that's that's excellent advice. Pick some stuff that you know is a slam dunk for your wife, stuff that you know she likes, and work only with those things on the plated stuff and have them come out early in the meal when she's, already, when she's, when she's not full yet, and then she can scale back her portion sizes later in the meal when you go family style, right? Wouldn't that make sense? Makes sense to me. I mean, for me, I get viciously, viciously angry if I plate something. And I'm not just talking plated, like, I'm talking sandwiches. Anytime you construct a food and then you watch someone pick it apart in front of you, I get viciously angry. Even, uh, and I shouldn't say this on the air because people do it all the time, but like, like, even when chefs do it, when, when, um, when, when I see someone do it to someone else's food, I'm like, look, at least taste it the way that they presented it, because that's the way it was intended, yeah. and and then pick it up, pick it apart. I mean, a sandwich doesn't taste the same if it's horribly mangled and then rearranged. It's not intended to be eaten that way. Do you know what I mean? Yep. I mean, uh, doesn't that make you kind of irritated sometimes, Nathan? I mean, if you actually hate something or you're allergic, fine. You know what I mean? But you're still not better. Better to tell the kitchen that beforehand, right? This way, they can make adjustments to the sandwich or to the plate such that it's still something that they're proud of. Here's my problem with it. My problem with it is you mangle somebody's plating or somebody's dish, right? And then you judge them based on your mangled version of their dish without giving them the opportunity to make the dish such that you would like it given your uh, issues with the food, right? I mean, does that make sense or no? Yeah, I think it does make sense. Uh, There's a a lot of... uh there's a lot to be said for having the chef 
be allowed to make it the best possible way. Uh, and uh, anyone who is cooking for other people wants to please those people. And so uh, it is always a little uh, disappointing if you're not given that opportunity. Now, <clears throat> to be fair, there are some people who, uh, for whatever reason, view it oppositely, and they say, oh, I don't want to bother the chef by telling him that I don't like uh, you know, pickles on my sandwich or, or, or some other thing, that they, they feel that's being too picky. And so they, they don't say it up front, and then they try to pick it out afterwards. But I agree, in general, you should be up front with, with what your, um, your requests are. Uh, obviously, if someone's allergic to something, that's a totally different issue. Although, if you're really allergic to it, it's too late to pick it up <laughs> at the time. You know? yeah, yeah, but let's if, take- if you have a nut allergy, picking the peanuts out of your Kung Pao chicken is too late. You're screwed. <laughs> um, yeah, but it, let's take uh, – okay, Nasasha's telling me I have to take a break, but – I'll say this. Uh, pickles is a very good example. If I put pickles on something, um, it's not just because I like pickles, but probably because that dish desperately needs the acidity from the pickle. Do you know what I mean? So you remove yep. that pickle, and you, now, you've, now you've unbalanced the whole thing. Then if you don't enjoy it, I feel bad. That's what it is. Basically, if you don't enjoy it, I feel bad. That's, where, that's what it comes down to. Yep. Um, all right, listen, the next caller, and we're going to go take one more break. The next caller is going to get that apron. 718-497-2128. 718-497-2128. Cooking issues. What was that song anyway? What is it? The Avalanche? Not The Avalanche. I don't know that one. This is the first time we've had a song. I have no idea what it is. Anyway, welcome back to Cooking Issues. Call your questions to 718-497-2128. Your questions from Nathan Mirvold at 718-497-2128. Well, we have an interesting one in from uh, Josh in Antigua. It uh, says, hello, he's been cooking Dave Chang's uh, five-minute, 10-second eggs and eating them with everything lately. He notices sometimes it's harder to peel them uh, without obliterating the white of the egg. Is this due to something in my procedure? I bring the eggs to room temperature before I boil them, let them sit in warm, uh, by, uh, by them sit in warm water. After boiling for four minutes and 50 seconds, he thinks 510 is uh, too set. He places the eggs in a nice bath until they're cool enough to handle. After wrapping a spoon against the shell until it's shattered into small pieces, he then peels the eggs in the ice bath. Uh... Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes the eggs come off with... Sorry, I didn't mean blah, 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 Josh. You know what I'm saying. Sometimes it comes off with no problem. Other times uh, it rips the egg apart. Please explain uh, what's going on. Uh, I have my feelings on it, Nathan. Do you have any feelings on that one? Well, uh, 
the uh, texture of egg is very critically dependent on the temperature at which it's cooked. And uh, the, so the first question I would have is, how consistent is it? If you're, boi if you're boiling and, and timing it exactly, that's probably okay, unless you're varying the number of eggs or the size of the pot or how crowded they are, uh, because that can make a difference if it's if it, the water on the egg is, is a little cooler because you put too many eggs in, uh, you're going to wind up with it less cooked, which means it's much easier to rip it. The other possibility is that it it's, uh, has been established that the age of the egg makes a difference, that uh, <coughs> uh, very fresh versus older eggs will have a different texture. Right. I, I, so that could be it. I think that's exa exactly what's going on. I mean, Chang's, I think, argument there is rapidly boiling large pots and, you know, an, a, a quantity of eggs that's not going to perceptively, perceptibly, uh, you know, lower the temperature of the water, that it's going to be able to recover quickly enough that it's not going to make that much of a difference. He always uses the same type, uh, same size, rather, of egg and always uh, <coughs> uh, starting at the same initial temperature, which... Uh, as Nathan said, should uh, prove fairly accurate. There are some studies that show that uh, eggs boiled uh, at uh, you know uh, quickly at a high temperature rather than ramped up from cold are easier to shell than ones that are uh, ramped up from cold and then and then shelled. Uh, Nathan and I both know that the exact opposite is true of low temperature eggs, ones that are cooked in the 62, 63, 64 Celsius range, because there the thin white just never sets up and it acts as a release agent. And there's nothing easier in the world than breaking out an egg that's been cooked at, at 62 degrees uh, Celsius. Yep. I mean, um, but uh, the, the other thing is as eggs uh, age, the uh, pH rises. The egg white becomes more alkaline. Uh, and as it becomes more alkaline, and this is according to uh, Egg Science and Technology by uh, William uh, Stadelman uh, and, you know, and others, uh, as the pH rises, the eggs become easier to shell because uh, the proteins in the thin white don't adhere as strongly to the, uh, to the membrane. And this is a big deal in egg processing technology because um, people produce for a living uh, shelled eggs and the value goes down dramatically. So people try to figure out a way to not have to store eggs, boil them quickly, and then rip the shells off of them. And so what they do is they actually alkalize the eggs. They, they store them above uh, a sodium hydroxide bath, not in it, but above it, uh, and that uh, increases the pH more rapidly than aging. Uh, and McGee actually recommends putting a pinch of baking soda into your water, although I've never tried it, to try and alkalize it more and make them easier to... Uh, to shell. And uh, another interesting reason to try and take a fresh egg and uh, alkalize it so that it can peel easily is because uh, even though it becomes easier to peel, the, f the taste of eggs uh, in the panels I've read on in these uh, um, technical studies, the taste of egg does deteriorate over time even though the peelability goes up. Uh, anyway, we have a caller on the air. Here's one other little tip I'll say. If you really want to uh, make it easier to peel your eggs, uh, Run a blowtorch very lightly o over the egg before peeling. Uh, it helps degrade the, the shell, and it's much easier. It also works to roll the egg in liquid nitrogen very briefly <laughs> before peeling it. That's hilarious. So extreme hot or extreme cold, both uh, will make the shell more brittle. You heard it here first, unless you want modernist cuisine. Uh, all right, caller, you're on the air. Hi, my name is Matt. I'm calling from Chicago. Howdy. Uh, Dave, I talked to you a while ago about nitrous-infusing uh, honey. And it didn't really work out, but that's a whole other story. Lately, um, 
I've been playing around with a little bit of uh, baking soda and Chardonnay right. to make it for, um, effervescent. Right. Uh, I did like a powdered sugar and baking soda rim. And I was wondering if you guys could give me some suggestions on doing a sorbet that has, say, something on top of it. So when you eat the sorbet and it melts, it becomes effervescent in your mouth. Oh, by the way, you won the apron, so don't hang up when you're done. We'll get you back on the air and we'll figure out how to mail the thing to you because you were the, in the next caller. So Awesome. Thank right. you very much. Well, thank thank Nathan. He donated it to the show for you to have. Uh, but Nathan, you have any uh, ideas? I wouldn't use baking soda, by the way. I mean, you need an acid plus uh, a base. I wouldn't use ba- – but anyway, Nathan, go ahead. Well, um, you know, the, the problem with uh, having an acid-base reaction to make it effervescent is you're going to get some taste out of it. Um, right. Which, in some, con- in some context, that's okay. You know, baking powder biscuits have a taste that is characteristic that way. Um, uh, unclear whether it's going to be okay in your Chardonnay. I mean, it, but that's sort of a personal preference. Uh, uh, the only other way to make something effervescent is to put in uh, something like Pop Rocks that already is effervescent itself, and it's sort of stored effervescent. Right, and and uh, okay. the Pop Rocks is definitely, I think, a better way to go, and you can buy unflavored Pop Rocks. Although, to be fair, Nathan, Pop Rocks isn't the same feeling as, like, effervescence in a, uh, in a, in a drink. Hey, um, why don't we to- – we'll, to- we'll leave him on the air because we need him to get the thing, but we'll tone down his thing. direct way. Yeah. So take your, your um, Chardonnay and put it in a seltzer bottle and infuse okay. it with uh, CO2. Yeah, much better. Right? The, 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 the reason that uh, soft drinks and champagne are effervescent is that they have carbon dioxide gas dissolved in it. And carbon dioxide happens to be a gas that is, will very readily dissolve in a cold liquid. Uh, okay. And uh, a seltzer bottle is exactly how you do that. So I would say, look, if you really want to have effervescent Chardonnay to make sort of a faux champagne, um, uh, just you know, carbonize it, uh, carbonate it directly. Yeah. And okay. the seltzer bottle is the simplest way. There are some other approaches you can do. If you put a tiny bit of dry ice into the bottle and seal it up, that'll also work. You just got to be careful you don't blow your bottle up. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> okay. I would. I would Google image. Uh, dry ice soda bottle to to All right. to see people's eyes when they when they don't do it properly because the bottle will blow. Uh, and then uh, my question was, I'm trying to do it for a dessert where it's a sorbet, like it's a Chardonnay sorbet, and maybe there's um, some kind of chemical on top that as it melts in the mouth or as you put it together, it. it it's almost effervescent in your mouth, as if the reaction is going on in your mouth. And you think maybe so the Pop Rocks is best for that? So the you could do that, you could put Pop Rocks powder on top. That would okay. work. But it will have its own sort of texture and taste characteristics. Um, okay. You know, I've not tried this, but uh, you could, if you made your sorbet, you ought to be able uh-huh. to carbonate it. It's it's tough because okay. the, the carbonation only works in the liquid phase, so it's a question of how much liquid That's phase... That's why you have to spin it first. You can't freeze it, but if you took it and you made a sorbet in a sorbet machine or a Paco Jet or something else, so it's in its state that semi-liquid, I bet you will right. get some CO2 in there. I mean, I've... Awesome. I pressurized a tailor once, and besides spraying ice cream base all over the kitchen, I wasn't able to get as much of an effect as, as I wanted. 
Uh, <laughs> Sam Mason was working on this for a while. I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, look, it's obviously it's possible, but the okay, the, yeah. car- the carbonation is only going to be present in the liquid phase. So you're going to have to. The superior your sorbet is, the better the effect of the carbonation is going to be. I mean, I, okay. th- I think right. I think you might want to go with uh, the pop rocks. Don't you think that's the, the easiest pop rocks way? May well work better. Um, there all there's a guy, uh, someone on the internet who has a uh, a site on dry ice ice cream, where instead of making uh, ice cream with liquid nitrogen, which is something Dave and I have been known to do, uh, he puts powdered dry ice into it, and then puts it into lets it sit. Well, the interesting thing is the car- the carbon dioxide does not get absorbed very much into the uh, ice cream base. A little bit it does. But it makes yeah. a uh, texture that looks almost exactly like white bread. Huh. Huh. Uh, because I've, um, the, I've uh, done that before with uh, dry ice pellets. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, so, so that, well, that's awesome. a way to make... Now, that's not quite the same thing as you're describing. Um, right. No, 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 no. But, but I'm just saying I've made an ice cream before with the base and dry ice pellets. Okay, cool. I mean, I, All right. I once made it yeah. by mistake, like many, many years ago, chilled a base with dry ice because I found a soft serve machine on the street and the chilling thing didn't work. And uh, I chilled down the base with dry ice and then froze it soft serve and, and it was... It was horrible. First of all, it was the only time I – it was the first time in my life many, many years ago that I had made a large amount of base at once in a pot by hand, and I curdled the eggs at the bottom. And so it tasted like scrambled egg soda ice cream, but not in a good wow. kind of Heston Blumenthal way, kind of in a really crappy, I messed up the ice cream way. Hello, Dave? Yep. Okay. Hey, listen, um, I, appreciate your, I appreciate your information, and it's been great. It's getting kind of loud where I'm at, sorry. All right. But um, I just wanted to tell you, uh, real quickly, I think the conversation with Steve Miller was that the old ex- record executive sent a younger guy in there, and the younger guy told him he had to have a hit record, so Steve Miller kicked back and said, well, how about this? Abracadabra, I'm going to reach out and grab you. For real? All right, the, the, Nathan, what we're talking about here is Steve Miller's worst song is clearly Abracadabra. Oh. Uh, I don't know whether, Nathan, whether you're a Steve Miller fan or not, but... The worst song Steve Miller ever came up with by far, Abracadabra. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, I am told that we have uh, one more caller on the air. True? Uh, we lost him. If they, if they come back, they come back. Um, okay. We had a question in uh, from Nedward uh, via Eater, Nathan, noted that someone spotted you on an airplane reading the Modernist Cuisine PDFs. Do you plan on selling the PDFs to poor cooks who can't buy the book? Um. You know, I really don't think anyone spotted me on an airplane doing that. Hey, look, this is not this is not me. This is coming <laughs> in via the internets. Okay, it's true, but let, just let me say, I, I, I've not been in that situation. I can promise you that. Um, uh, so you're not uh, denying that the PDFs exist. Made PDFs uh, in order to um, uh, to print the book. You know, PDFs are a key part of the whole printing process. Uh, that's how the book gets sent over to the printer in China is as PDFs. So, of course, we have PDFs of the book. Um, and we have had, there was a period where we had some reviewers uh, that uh, needed to see the book. We didn't have physical books, so we had a uh, password-protected website where reviewers could go read the PDFs. And the result was kind of interesting. Uh, most people found that it was better than nothing, but only a little bit better than nothing. And that... Uh, the usability was not very good. Uh, I think if we really wanted to make an uh, online or interactive or um, iPad version of the book, 
we'd have to do something a lot more extensive than simply put the, the PDFs up there because navigating around those huge photos, navigating around the, the, the rest of the book is just too hard. Right. All right. Let's take... So someday I would like to have an interactive version of the book. Uh, you know, we made a decision two years before release as to what platform we would target first, and we chose paper books because there was no iPad, and Kindle didn't do color, and still doesn't. Uh, so you really couldn't have something that would really show off what we were trying to do. Um, at some point in the future, we will probably make an uh, interactive version, but it's a lot of work. Um, well, to get the quality, the, to get the interaction the same, you mean to get the quality what you want. Well, I mean, you could easily example, do an online version. Do you it's want just... to have video? Uh, do you want to have animations? Do you want to have good navigation? All of those things take some software development effort, or they take a whole bunch more um, effort in shooting a video. It's not easy to do. Right. Uh, so, I guess the, the point is you could do it now, but you can't do it right, and you don't want to do it wrong. Exactly. You said it better than I did. Yeah. Um, apparently that caller that uh, got dropped is back on the air. Let's take one last call. Hello, caller. You're on the air. Hello. This is Daniel from San Jose, California. Howdy. I had a question about um, acidic marinades. In the book um, Modernist Cuisine, there's a section on acidic marinade in meat, and um, the section talks about how acidic marinades can actually tenderize meats and improve their moisture holding capacities. I was um, interested in um, how this, how you guys came to this conclusion because um, I've noticed that there are others like um, Harold Mickey who believe that um, acidic marinades only um, denature protein on the surface of meats. Take it away, Nathan. Well. I think there's two issues going on here. First of all, marinades only penetrate a certain distance. That's just a fact. Um, and any marinade is only going to work on the surface if you don't either give it enough time to, to go in or you don't do something like injection or tumbling or other things to speed it up. Uh, now, an acidic marinade, uh, if it's there are many cookbooks that will have an acidic marinade where you put the, the meat in for a very short period of time, 20 minutes or something like that. That is just a surface flavoring. And that's fine if that's the surface flavor you want to get. You just shouldn't think you're going to change the interior of a piece of meat in a 10 or 20 minute period. It just isn't going to happen. It takes too long for the diffusion time. But an acidic marinade certainly will denature proteins um, all the way through the meat if you get the marinade all the way through the meat. And either by waiting long enough or by using injection uh, or tumbling or all of the above, you certainly can get that to happen. Um, and you, the similar things, of course, occur with an uh, alkaline marinade. Uh, in either case, what you're trying to do is take the meat proteins into a regime where they're not normally um, uh, present in meat. So you either make it much more acidic or much more alkaline, and either one causes some of the proteins to break down. And depending on the context, that could be desirable. But I promise you it'll work all the way through if you inject it or, um, uh, or, or tumble it or simply wait long enough or have your meat be thin enough. All right. Thank you. Well, there, there you have it. And uh, 
I would like to. I'm gonna. I'm gonna answer. A guy named Josh writes in and asks where he can get high proof liquor in England because he wants to do uh, like infusions and wants to know if you really need the high proof liquor. Answer, Josh. Yes, you can't buy Everclear in uh, in England though. They don't sell it. Look for Spiritus Vodka out of Poland at the Whiskey Exchange, or look for Stroh Rum from Austria. The original eighty percent. That'll float your infusion boat. I have many, many thanks. Thank you, Nathan, for spending this last hour with us. I think people really enjoyed it. Uh, Hopefully, you'll come on again sometime. Modernist Cuisine, the greatest series of cookbooks ever written. Cooking Issues. Thank you. Vicious, vicious vodka. Supposed to meet my baby I'm 20 minutes late You got my head all twisted And I just can't get it straight Vicious, vicious vodka Oh, you dirty rat Got me on this corner And I don't know where I'm at I had a chance to swap you for a little gin Every spring at the end of kidding season goat dairies across the country are faced with the question of what to do with their male bucklings because on a dairy farm there's no role for a male often the most economical thing for these farmers to do is to call the animals at birth or ship them off to the commodity market Heritage Foods USA is embarking on a new project, No Goat Left Behind, looking to step in and fill this niche by creating a marketplace for these male bucklings. Visit us at www.heritagefoodsusa.com to learn more and to reserve your goat this coming October. New York Night Train, Summer Soul Shindig, Rockaway Beach Party. Featuring the 45 RPM soul magic of DJ Jonathan Tobin. Saturday, August 20th, 6 to 9 at Rippers, Boardwalk 86. Free party. <laughs> 